right? So they designed the government to work slowly, but people want their answers quick. And so Washington warns in his farewell address, he says that disorders and miseries will incline the hearts of men to seek security in the absolute power of an individual. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the Y Milbank Podcast Network from Milbank, South Dakota. This is Craig Weinberg. Ymilbank.com is our website. If you want to help support the show, go to ymilbank.com, click on the podcast button, and find the donate option there. Everything helps, and we appreciate all the support we get. So we can have more conversations like the one we have today, uh, which is a big one. Bill Federer of the American Minute. Dot com. Bill is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch, a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Bill was kind enough to give us some time to talk about uh, his explorations into history. Uh, he's written numerous books. Uh, the, the, the length of the titles he has under his name is quite vast. AmericanMinute.com is where you find out his latest book, Socialism. Uh, he's going to talk about that in just a little bit. The Real History from Plato to the Present. Uh, certainly worth a read. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for hanging out with us. Let's jump right into it. Thanks a lot. Bill Federer of AmericanMinute.com. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be with you. You graduated uh, a ways back uh, with an accounting and business degree. When did that change into uh, your a love of history? Yeah, well, my dad was a historian and attorney and the head of several historical societies in the St. Louis area. One was the Chateau de Menil Mansion right across <laughs> the highway from Anheuser-Busch Brewery. But it was a French fur trapper that uh, St. Louis was the fur capital of the world for a while. They had the roundup in uh, the Rocky Mountains, and then they would bring all the furs back to St. Louis. And uh, so they had the fur exchange, but the one wealthy person had a big mansion with big white pillars in front and uh, but my called the Chateau de Menil mansion and my dad was in charge of that and then the other is uh, Carondelet is a French community south of St. Louis which actually predates St. Louis so hmm. uh, the everything west of the Appalachians was French territory it was named after King Louis the the 14th the Sun King he, who was the longest reigning monarch in Europe and had this global empire. And, uh, and then, of course, the British won the French and Indian War and expected to claim the entire Louisiana territory. But at the last minute, the French did a secret treaty, giving everything west of the Mississippi to Spain. Now, Spain had no army or staff to run everything west of the Mississippi, especially at such a short notice. So it was really no man's land. 
So sort of anything goes. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you wanted to talk about the wild, wild West after 18, <laughs> you know, three, you're talking about St. Louis, but um, so the, when the British won the war, the Spanish, excuse me, the French and Indian war mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, 1850s and 60s, you had a ton of French people cross the Mississippi River onto the west side. And the first ones were some Catholic priests, and they landed uh, in the 1760s uh, at a river, and the river got called River de Pere, River of the Fathers. And they set up a little community called Carondelet. And they did a little farmers and so forth, but it was started a few years before uh, St. Louis was started. And, but my dad was the head of the Carondelet Historical Society. And it's uh, a lot of interesting stuff. So you had no, the, uh, you had no chance then. <laughs> yeah. And so every, every, what do you call it? Vacation. Yeah. We would go to a French fort, uh, Fort Chartres, or we'd go to an Indian reservation or Kit Carson's fort out West or Medicine Hat or Pea Ridge battlefield in Arkansas. Or we'd go to something. And of course, at our young age, all that would be left would be like the foundation of right. some, you know, barracks that the the army had. And, and we would like climb up and run along the foundation, like choo-choo trains, you mm -hmm. know, like, you know, running along this foundation. We had no clue of the history, <laughs> but, uh, but I have to say that when I uh, really became real to me, when I became an adult and really when I started taking my Christian faith seriously mm. and uh, you know, we began to see back in the 1980s and early nineties, the, movement to edit christianity out of our history books well, was so it that the, recent yeah yeah so so you know prior to that you um you had christianity and uh really the the big change was the 1960s mm -hmm. and so you had a guy who later became a friend of mine but his name was william murray not the not the actor bill murray but <laughs> this is uh william murray and his mother was madeline murray o'hare and she was this crazy communist that wanted to immigrate to the Soviet Union. And so she took her son and they took a ship, wound up in France, went to the Russian embassy, said, we want to move to Russia. And the embassy's like, you're nuts. You're not moving over here. So she <laughs> gets back on the ship, goes back, gets off at Maryland, putting her kid, uh, Bill Murray, into the school system. Sees these kids praying and reading the Bible. So she brings a lawsuit to stop it. And she gets flooded with money from every atheist in the mm -hmm. country. And he, he said that money was just coming in from everywhere. And she, so she started filing suits. Every one of them was a moneymaker for her. She was making headlines. and But she sued on his behalf. And uh, later he became a Christian, left her. Uh, and she, 1968, Apollo uh, 11 circles the moon. and Apollo 8, rather, circles the moon. And they read the first chapter of Genesis from the lunar module as they're circling on Christmas Eve, wow. 1968. And she threatens to sue Nassau. Are you kidding? And so they, yeah. And so after that, they said, okay, if you're going to say any prayers, turn the mic off, you know. Mm. But um, anyway, so, um, so he leaves her and she ends up getting murdered. And then he becomes uh, a strong Christian. Bill Murray starts religious freedom uh, 
Association. I'm not sure I'm saying the name exactly right, but and he's been championing initially to get prayer back into schools because mm. it was the law his lawsuit that got prayer out of the schools. Uh, but then he's focused on rescuing the Christians in the Middle East. Mm. And um, so you can look up, you know, William J. Murray. Uh, he wrote a book uh, about his life testimony. And uh, so anyway, so so we so it's the 1960s on. There's been this effort to sort of uh, edit God out. And we saw that and uh, started compiling a lot of quotes. Mm-hmm. And long story short, finally got a book published uh, in 1994 with all these God and country quotes in the book sold a half million copies. Wow. So, um, so I tell people, uh, the change when I, have you ever driven by a cornfield and then you turn the corner and you see the rows line up? Yeah. History from a secular point of view, it's all there, but there's no order to it. It's just sort of like seed thrown out. But then you turn the corner on history and you see it from a providential view of God's hand involved in history. All of a sudden you see the rows line up. All of a sudden it makes sense. And you see that the most common form of government in world history is kings. Mm. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, Attila, the Hun, Genghis Khan. And as the centuries go on, these kingdoms get bigger and bigger because with military advancements, they can kill more people. Technological advancements, they can track more people. I mean, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It's called the census. I mean, if he could have chipped everybody and had drones and <laughs> right. cameras, he would have done that. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you can clearly see that uh, finally the King of England had the biggest, he was a globalist. He was a one world government guy with him at the top. And America's honors broke away, flipped it, made the people the king. And then I go through, where did this idea come from? Well, ultimately ancient Israel, mm-hmm. the first 400 years out of Egypt where they didn't have a king. And, but it's this idea that um, in America, you get to pursue your dreams. You get an idea. You can work up, work in your garage all night long to come up with an invention. And then it, you, can, you don't have the government taking it away. You get a patent to it. And then you can become prosperous and then you can bless your family and your family buys things. And so people have to make more stuff that, right. and then you can hire other people. So you make jobs for people and, and rising water floats all boats. Everybody ends up. Um, but, but the idea is, is that you get to be that God made you to be. And ultimately you get a choice. So instead of you having for being forced from the outside in to believe the way the government does, or you're going to be persecuted, you know, uh, the idea is that the government is has its hands tied. There's handcuffs on the government, and you're you're free to believe or not believe. Mm-hmm. You're free to have a follow your conscience, and then the, it, that's based on a Christian concept that your worship of God is only pleasing to God if it's voluntarily given. It's not the a concept of you know believe what we tell you to believe or we're going to burn you at the stake or chop your head off. It's like, no, God's not interested in you being a hypocrite saying you believe it when you really don't, but you're just afraid of being punished. No, God's really, really seriously interested in your heart of you voluntarily deciding to follow him. And so we have to take away the government restraints so that you have the freedom. It's not take away the government restraints because we want to atheistic heathenistic society mm-hmm. no no the, the founders said no we, we want to take away so that you have the freedom of conscience so that your choice of choosing god is a voluntary one so in, in america today 
we tend to have a, uh, a a new understanding, new definition of what truth is. So you know, there's this idea that uh, if I believe something with my whole heart, whether it is known to be, we'll call it true or not, um, is supposed to be accepted by all those around as truth, and that's called my truth. Um, is that a new phenomenon over history, or are we, is this all a rehash of what we've what's happened over the centuries? Yeah, it, there's um, oh some Chinese emperor, and uh, he had a chancellor who was more or less plotting to uh, get rid of the, <laughs> the emperor, and this chancellor wanted to see who was loyal to him mm -hmm. and who was loyal to this emperor that he wanted to get rid of. And so he brought a deer in to the court and had the generals around. And he said, uh, that's a horse. And, <laughs> you know, these guys are like, that's a deer. Hello. You know, and he looked around, you know, and he says, okay, not that guy. And then finally some other guys caught on and they go, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a horse. And somebody else says, yeah, that's a horse, right? And so when he did his coup and got rid of the emperor, he got rid of everybody that, that called the deer a deer. And he kept the people that decided to say that it's a horse because he knew that they were going to uh, do what he told them to do. And, They're um, easily swayed. Well, or at least they understood how to play the game. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, if, if there's no God, there's no truth. Mm -hmm. it, just like you can spin a news story you can spin history you can it, it, it i mean if there's no god if there's no absolute right or wrong yeah. then your agenda is all that matters and you can do whatever you want to achieve your agenda you can lie now and you can twist history into lies if, if it if it helps you islam does this so uh if you discover an artifact that is evidence that the jews had a temple or the mm -hmm. Jews had, you know, King David or whatever. Uh, the is Islamic response is what? Destroy the artifact. Yeah, get rid of evidence. <laughs> they're, they're not, oh, well, gee, maybe the Jews really do yeah. have a claim to all the, the, the you know, they want to destroy that because it doesn't fit their doctrine. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the 1984 George Orwell. <laughs> Uh, he wrote it in 1948 and flipped the numbers to make it 1984. And, but it's this idea of the state getting power. And there's a character in the book named Winston. And his job was to sit there in the government library with all the records. And this was written in 1948. So the new technology was, was pneumatic tubes. Hmm. And he would get uh, a message sent to him that this enemy in the past was really our friend and the friend of the past was really our enemy. And, and it was his job to uh, take a little pen knife and cut the, the old, you know, sentences out of the books and uh, put in new. And then he would take the old stuff and put it in another pneumatic tube and send it down. Um, you know how, when you go to a bank and you would put your deposit mm -hmm. and it would suck it up, right? It would suck the tube into the memory hole, which was an incinerator in the basement <laughs> of the building where it was burned up mm. and gone. And he said every date was changed. Every name was changed. Every street was renamed. Every um, 
you know, everything, every statue, every building was changed, was renamed. And he goes, and I did it myself. Hmm. And he says that once it was done, there was no record of it having been done. Yeah. And the only record was in my mind. And I didn't know if anyone else had the same thoughts that I did in my mind. And he says, so he says, the, you know, the history was changed. The change was erased. The erasure was forgotten. And now it's, it's new, a new truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of these dystopian novels, 1984, which is sort of a dark, you know, future type mm -hmm. thing. But, but nevertheless, it documents the, the intentional changing of history and then the uh, bad guy, you know, catches Winston and uh, they're torturing him. And, and he says, no, why does the government want power? And he goes, oh, because it wants to do good for people. He goes, no, <laughs> the government wants power for power. Mm -hmm. He says, these other groups in the past, they said they wanted power because they wanted to help people. And they really didn't want to help people. They were just saying it to help people. He goes, but we're different. We just come out flat out and say, we just want power for power. Yeah. And, and so that's what you have politicians that say, well, well we want a little more power because we want to do something good because they don't. There, there's a philosopher named um, Mencken, uh, Henry Louis Mencken. And he wrote in Notebooks 1956, he goes, the urge to save humanity is always a false face for the urge to rule it. <laughs> So all these people say, well, we're going to save the world. We're going to save humanity. It's like, mm, you're, you're just wanting to control the world. So the benevolent dictator is the problem. He comes in to save the world. And then well, what do they do? Do they get a taste of power and realize how good it is? Or is there ulterior motive that's always there? Uh, here is Truman. Uh, he was the 33rd president. He said uh, that the lust for power is like gambling and mm. it gets into a man's blood. And, you know, somebody that gambles, it's like, they can't help it. They want to go back and gamble some more. And he goes, someone that wants power, they just want it. And uh, William Henry Harrison, the ninth president said, the lust for power is an undying worm in the gut. He says, where other sins grow weaker with age, mm. this only grows stronger. Right. So, you know, lust and so forth the person's body gets older they don't have the same drive that they used to so the the, the temptation is not as strong but but he says the lust for power that just gets stronger with age is this why you we get, see the political class aging so well <laughs> in america yeah i mean you have uh i think nancy pelosi's is in her 80s and george soros is 80s or 90s or something and um but it's uh, it's you know it's a spiritual attitude. The uh, you know Jesus said, "The lords of this world rule over people, mm. and they are called benefactors." And he says, "But it shall not be so with you. The greatest of you shall be the servant." He says, "I came amongst you not as one to be served, but to serve," and uh, and so. Jesus was presenting a, a different instead of the top down, bottom up. I am um, always fascinated with the temptation of mm -hmm. Christ where the devil comes and says, 
bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world for their mind to give, and I give them to whoever I want. And uh, Jesus says, Thou shalt worship the Lord mm-hmm. thy God, him only shalt thou serve. But you're like, whoa, that's that's pretty audacious claim of the devil. Yeah. That all the kingdoms of the world. It's like, when did he get them? Uh, when Adam sinned. Mm. So Adam was in charge of the garden. We know that because he named everything. And naming is evidence that you have authority over. Mm-hmm. You name your kids, right? You and but the Bible says to whomever you yield your members, servants to obey, to him you are a servant. So the moment Adam obeyed Satan. He was posturing himself as the obeyer and the devil is only being in charge. Right? So that was when the devil usurped power. And so all the kingdoms of the world, the electricity that flows through them is fear. Mm-hmm. You do what the king says, or ultimately he will die. kill you. Yeah. And uh, Montesquieu is a French political philosopher quoted a lot by the founding fathers. And he described different forms of government and what motivated them. And he said, <clears throat> republics are motivated by virtue. And it's this concept that everybody's going to be fair because they're going to be rewarded or punished in the next world. So, but he says, uh, monarchs, which is a king with strings attached, he's got parliaments, he's got monarchs motivate through honor and dishonor, hmm. right? Shame. They call it honor, shame culture. Right? You do what he says, even if it's immoral, but if you do something that helps him get more power he'll honor you make you a sir or a knight or give you a bunch of land and you know but if you don't do what he says he'll strip you of your honors and shame you and you'll be you know so but he says a despot is a king with no strings attached and he and he says that they're they're you know you do what they say they give you a harem Mm. you know fleshly pleasure you don't do what they say they chop off your hand or your head it's just pain or pleasure and uh, it's interesting. So, so Montesquieu said republics, um, where the people ruled through virtue, they are most prevalent in the Protestant countries of Northern Europe. Right? Like, you know, but he says monarchs are most prevalent in the Catholic countries of Southern Europe. You know, France, Italy he says that a government that wants a visible head, mm-hmm. like a monarch, is more apt to have a religion with a visible head. And he says, despots are most prevalent in Muslim countries, like the Ottoman Empire or the Persian Shah. And you do what they say, you get a, you know, a harem or women, you don't do what they say, you get, you know. and it's almost a spirit, mind and body thing. So a person's a spirit, mind and body. And so there's motivations for each. Uh, the virtue is your reward or punished in the next world. So you're, you're doing it as unto God. You're being nice to people because you're accountable to God and you don't want to. So that's a spiritual thing. Honor and shame that a monarch does. That's more of a mental thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a soulish realm and despot is the physical, physical pleasure, physical pain. And, uh, and then another little analogy is there's three Kings of United Israel, right? So you had, Uh, 400 years, Israel had judges, and they ruled themselves as a republic. But then they get King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. And then it splits after that into the northern Israel and southern one. But there's only three kings of the united nation of Israel, um, Saul, David, Solomon. And what's Saul known for? 
Well, he was head and shoulders above anybody else. He was the physical. Mm -hmm. And David was known for what? A heart. He had a heart after the Lord and after man, after God's own heart. And then Solomon was known for what? His mind. Smart. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Wisdom. And so you sort of have, you know, the the spirit, mind, and body in these three kings, but the idea of the spirit, mind, and body of the motivations uh, in government, that was Montesquieu's aspect. And um, and so uh, the republics are based on the people having virtue. And if everybody has virtue and everybody's accountable to God and they want to treat you nice, you can go anywhere and feel safe. But the, the despots rule, I mean, the, the kings rule through honor and shame, a monarch, honor and shame. And so that's where you begin to see the somebody's ridiculed on TV or they're made fun of on the internet, or they're, they're shamed, they're blocked, they're canceled, right? Mm-hmm. They're, but then you have the, um, the despots that rule uh, through the fear of, um, and so uh, the, what, uh, you, you begin to see the application of these three styles. When, when you're switching from a, Republic ruled by virtue to a despot that is ruled through fear. Mm-hmm. When you begin to be afraid of your government, what you're feeling in your gut is a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of it being bottom up, we the people are electing our leaders from amongst ourselves, right? An outflow. Now it's ruled top down. And the government rules through fear. You do what they say, or they can shoot you. You can lose your job. You can't do this. Right? So when you begin to feel afraid of your government, what you're feeling is, is a political change of from you being in charge, ruling country bottom up to a dictator being in charge, ruling top down. So how far off are we currently in America, in your mind, to that switch? Yeah, it, um, you know, magnets, if you have them facing one another, but then you begin to turn it and turn it and turn it. And then when you hit a certain point where you turn it, all of a sudden the other side faces Mm -hmm. and it goes from, you know, repelling to attracting. So, so we're right at that, that period where you can feel uh, that there's, it's, it's almost at the place of flipping. Mm -hmm. And um, now I have to get my, hope from the scriptures. And I remind myself, what are the stories we love best? And the stories are when God's people are in hopeless situations and he raises up little nobodies with faith and courage to turn things around. And so the the most powerful military leader in the world at Moses's time was the Pharaoh. And here's Moses, an 80 year old guy. And he's got all these Israelites and they're totally unarmed. And he's facing chariots and swords and, and he stands there with his staff and holds it out and the waters come in and just destroy Pharaoh's chariots. We love those stories. And there's David. He's just a teenager against this monster Goliath. And uh, I mean, God loves to wait until things look hopeless. Then he raises up little nobodies with faith and courage. So this is just our time. Hmm. Now, the one story that I, again, I get my encouragement from the scriptures, but it's Josiah. Who's he? His grandfather was Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. And when Manasseh became king, 
he decided to go off the deep end and worship all these pagan gods. And one of those was Moloch. And the way of worshiping Moloch was to sacrifice kids, babies. And it was their version of abortion. But uh, the prophets go to Manasseh and they say, you are so wicked. You are doing the things that the people that were here before Israel came in did. And because they were doing it, and I'm a just God, and there can't be anything more unjust than killing a totally innocent baby that's not done anything wrong. If, if the just God doesn't respond to stop it, he's no longer a just God, right? His, his very nature is driving him. And so the, the prophets tell Manasseh, you're doing the same thing that the people that were here before Israel did. And I brought Israel in to judge them and drive them out. And because you're doing it, I'm going to judge you and drive you out. Mm. So judgment was pronounced. But then Manasseh had a grandson named Josiah. He's eight years old when he becomes the king. 16 years old, starts to seek the Lord. Around 20, he tells them to clean out the temple that his granddad, Manasseh, had trashed. And they find the scroll, the law of God. And the Jewish commentator, Josephus, and their Mishnah, their oral, oral traditions, says that it was the last copy of the law on earth. Because Manasseh, not just sacrificing babies, uh, but he was wanting to destroy all copies of the law. And so it was um, supposedly, you know, the original one that Moses had wrapped in burlap, and it was in some storage room in the temple. They're cleaning out the temple. They find it, and the priests evidently had never read it before, because when they read it, they're like, this is pretty important. We better take <laughs> it to the king. If, if they had read it every day, they wouldn't think it was, it's suddenly important. So they take it to the king. It is clear that the king had never heard it before, mm -hmm. and they're reading the law to King Josiah in his early 20s, and he rips his garments and repents says, dear God, I've just come in, into my own in, in leadership, and I found out that our country has turned its back on God, and we're facing judgment. And so he repents, he sends a prophetess, he sends his messengers to a prophetess in town named Holda, she's the wife of the king's tailor, to ask her what is going to happen. So she's a contemporary of Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is not in Jerusalem at this time. And, and so she says, tell the man that sent you that, yes, judgment will come, but not during his lifetime, because he repented when he heard the words of the Lord. So for the rest of the 31-year reign of Josiah, there was peace and prosperity in Judah. He sends the Levite priests out to teach the law. Supposedly during that revival is when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got saved. And he's tearing down these Sodomite temples and he's, you know, returning to the Lord. And uh, so for the rest of the 31-year reign of Josiah, there is peace and prosperity in Judah. Now, when he dies, it goes down the drain and they're taken captive to Babylon. But it's this idea from the time judgment was pronounced there was this reprieve of repentance before the judgment hit the fan. And so we deserve judgment with all the millions of babies being aborted and, and teaching stuff contrary to the Bible to these kids in schools. You know, Jesus said in the beginning, God made them male and female. 
And yet they're trying to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. Well, if you're a Christian, you'll really tolerate this transgendered agenda being taught. It's like, would Jesus teach that? No, <laughs> Jesus says in the beginning, God made a male and female. So if I'm really Christian, I'll tolerate them teaching something that Jesus would never teach. Hmm. Like, how does that work? You know, if I'm really Christian, I won't act like Christ. Right? No, Jesus even took it another step. He says, if you allow one of these little ones that believes in me to stumble, better that a millstone be put around your neck and you'd be thrown in the depths of the sea. And so if I let you do this, I'm asking for a millstone to be put around my neck. But they're guilt-tripping Christians into saying, no, 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 if you're really tolerant, you'll tell it. And, um, and so here we are, and uh, we are at a place where we deserve judgment. But if we, when we hear this message, when we hear the words of the Lord, and we rend our hearts and not our garments, and we repent and say, God, we deserve your judgment, but uh, have mercy through, through the name of Jesus and, and you know, turn from our wicked ways and, and seek his face and do what we can, then he can put off the judgment. Mm-hmm. And whenever it finally hits, it hits, it's, it's up to him, but, but we've done our part. Speaking of the church a little bit, um, I kind of heard you talk recently um, at uh, Hibbs Church in California uh, about the the different groups of Christians that came, that have come about, like the different. I don't know if it would be technical denominations, um, but it's always intrigued me. Um, I grew up in church, and I, I still am a Christian, so there's nothing, you know, I haven't run away. But this idea of so many different, like, fundament, fundamental belief systems we have within the Christian faith, um, where did that all start, this idea that we are compartmentalized as Christians with presumably the same guidebook? Yeah, so God calls for unity of the spirit, mm-hmm. not necessarily unity of every single part of doctrine. And even the Apostle Paul uh, gives a little leeway on the minor things. He says some people keeps one day special, other keeps every day special. To some person, it's okay for them to eat meat sacrificed to an idol because an idol is nothing, and mm-hmm. it's like they don't care. Other people, they think an idol is, you know, something that they got away from, and if they see you doing it, and so he says, you know, don't eat eat the meat if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. And there's a little bit of leeway there, but not leeway when it comes to the major things. Like we're sinners. Mm -hmm. God is a just God. He has to judge every sin, but he's a loving God. And that he provided his own son to take the judgment in our place. So that's why you approach God through Jesus. So those are the major things. We don't um, shift on those, but as, as far as the, uh, you know, the apostle Paul, the first three centuries of Christianity, they don't live long enough to really argue over doctrine. I mean, you they didn't have a New Testament yet. Yeah, It was just, hey, Jesus is real. He changed my life. And the Roman government finds out about it and drags you into the Colosseum and kills you. It's like, how much doctrine did that guy know? <laughs> really not much. You know, yeah. I mean, he didn't even have a New Testament. I mean, and if he did have anything, it was a handwritten letter of Paul that was like circulating around. But yet he was willing to give us life mm. for Jesus. And um, uh, and so, uh, but once Constantine legalized Christianity, right? So you had 10 major persecutions in the first three centuries. Uh, the Christians would meet in catacombs. 
I went to school in Rome, Italy for a semester, and we toured uh, the catacombs, which are these caves that the Christians dug underground. And I remember one time we were going down some road outside the Vatican. It's like got a little dip in and to the side. It's got a hill and it looks almost like a drainage ditch with a little gate. And uh, the tour guide goes over there, unlocks it, and, and you know, ear, the little metal gate opens, and you got to bend over and you got to sort of scooch back for about 30 yards down this little tunnely way. And then you get back there and it opens up into um, a little room, maybe 20 by 20. Got first century graffiti on the walls and, you know, torch marks on the ceiling and, uh, and then little passages that go off in all kinds of different directions. And, but that was the Christian experience for three centuries. Wow. You met in secret mm -hmm. in small groups. You didn't know a whole lot, but you were touched in your heart. And every now and then you were raided and drug into the Colosseum and killed. And, um, but then Constantine, uh, so the, the worst emperor was Diocletian, lost some battles with Persia, asked his generals why they lost. And he said, well, you've ne neglected the Roman gods. And so he tells his soldiers to return to worshiping the Roman gods. Well, this is the third century. There's a lot of Christians by this time. So they're all forced out. Could you imagine an agenda that forces Christians out of the military? And um, anyway, once Christians are out of the military, Diocletian decides to use the military to force the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods. And so now this military that's cleansed of Christians is being used to go city by city, mm. county by county, province by province, tearing down churches, shutting them down, arresting church leaders, cutting out their tongues, boiling them alive, destroying the scriptures. And, um, uh, and so this is, uh, is Diocletian. And so the Christians are praying and praying and praying. And so finally, Diocletian is struck with an intestinal disease. And he abdicates the throne on May 1st, 305 AD. And uh, I think that's sort of interesting because by this time, the emperors had been declaring themselves a god and demanding that their image be worshipped and would sprinkle gold dust in their hair. So Ooh. this was sort of like a god resigning. And um, <laughs> I just think that's funny. So the next emperor is Galerius, and he continues the persecution. He's struck with an intestinal disease and dies. Must have been something in the water. And now there's a no emperor, and it's a toss-up among four generals. Two are quickly defeated, and it comes down to Constantine, who had led an army in York, England, or Britain, which was a Roman colony, and, uh, and then uh, Maxentius, who is in Rome. And so Constantine marches toward Rome, and, and if Maxentius would have just stayed in the city, he could have you know, waited it out, but he decided to go out and fight, and so it's the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. 313 AD uh, or 312, but um, Constantine wins. And the story is that the day before the battle, he saw the sign of Christ in the sky and uh, puts it on all of his shields. It's the Cairo. The X is the Greek letter that makes the K sound, and the P is the Greek letter Rho that makes the R sound. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to write the Greek name for Christ, the first two letters would look like an X and a P, but it's called Cairo. He puts this big X and a P on all of his Roman shields and symbols, and he wins. And so 313 AD is the Edict of Milan. He stops the persecution of Christians. 
things are going good. Now you can come out of the catacombs. You can worship openly. Constantine decides he's going to build a big marble basilica church to, you know, and um, so the Christian experience now for little kids is going to a big marble church. And then uh, you have the Arian heresy. A guy named Arius says Jesus is a created being. He's less than God. And it causes a split of a whole lot of Visigoth immigrants into Rome converting to Arianism and this church split because Constantine had made Christianity the de facto religion. Hmm. His church split is having political fallout. And so Constantine's like, look, guys, settle it now already. So Constantine pays for all the church leaders to go to Nicaea, which is today in Turkey. Uh, back then it was the Byzantine Empire to settle it. He pays for it. This is the first time all the Christian leaders of the whole Christian world meet in one place. And they settle it. They write the Nicene Creed. It's a good creed, still said today. Uh, then there's another heresy, another consul, another heresy, another consul, another heresy. Until pretty soon you have the state-approved doctrine. Hmm. And it's, it's good doctrine. But then you have 379 AD and Emperor Theodosius. He's a Christian. He goes to church in Milan, Italy. And he decides he's going to outlaw paganism. Over there in Greece, they're still running the Olympics and they ran them naked. And they still had temple prostitutes and they still had, you know, sacrifice of children. And, and he's like, enough of this. He sends his army over there and, and you know, stops it. But uh, basically from that point on, it became illegal to be a pagan. And so you had all these pagans flooding into these marble churches saying they believed in the state-approved doctrine. And it is, they've never had a heart change. Hmm. In one century, it goes from meeting in catacombs. You don't know much, but you believe in Jesus. It goes from that intensely personal thing to now it's a state it's doctrine. It's a mandate. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so a revival movement starts called pietism that said being a Christian is more than doctrine. You got to have a experience with Jesus. And, and so they would get saved. But they would sort of go off the other ditch on the other side of the road, and they would remove themselves from society, mm -hmm. give away all their money, and live in a cave as a hermit the rest of their life, or join a monastery. And um, anyway, um, but then you uh, developed into Justinian, and then you developed, you know, with um, uh, the uh, Latin Vulgate, Jerome, he does the Latin Vulgate, but then you have the fall of the Roman Empire with Attila the Hun, and then you have Islam co conquers. And, um, but the, the Dark Ages, because they write fewer and fewer, the only people that can write are the monks, and they're, they sort of preserve knowledge uh, for Western civilization. And, um, and then you come out of the, the uh, Middle Ages with the Renaissance. The Muslims are invading Greece. Greek scholars are fleeing west. And they bring their Greek New Testament. So now people can read Greek for the first time. And it begins to lay the foundation for Martin Luther and the Reformation. And so, so you have uh, Eastern Europe's Greek Orthodox. Constantinople is the main city. Western Europe is Roman Catholic. And Rome, Italy is the main city. And, but the Muslims invade. And they're invading into the Eastern Orthodox. And these Greek Orthodox are fleeing. And they, um, the, the Pope 
begs for the European kings to send help. They do what's called the Crusades. When the Crusades end, the Muslims uh, conquer Constantinople, cutting off the land routes to India. That's when Columbus looks for a sea route. And then uh, the Muslims surround Vienna, Austria in 1529. Martin Luther started the Reformation in 1517. And so now you got the king of Spain trying to stop. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. He's trying to stop the Muslim invasion on the outside surrounding Vienna. And he's got this breakup of his Holy Roman Empire on the inside with this Reformation. He, stri- he tries to do both for a decade or two. Stop the Muslims, put down this Reformation. Finally, the Islamic threat is so bad that he has to strike a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And in this Peace of Augsburg, there's a little Latin phrase that made a big deal. The phrase is cuius regio eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion, which means, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom. Mm. Let's just work together against this Islamic invasion because they sort of want to kill us all. And it worked. It stopped the Islamic invasion. But in the next century, different kings believed slightly different things. And so in England, they were Anglican, Scotland, Presbyterian, Holland, Dutch, Reformed, Northern Germany and Sweden, Lutheran, Switzerland, Calvinist. You know, Serbia was Serbian Orthodox, Russia was Russian Orthodox, Greece was Greek Orthodox, and Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland remained Catholic. But it was one denomination per country. And if you didn't believe the way your king did, it was considered treason and you would flee. So you had this mass migration of people shifting around Europe for conscience sake, a lot of religious wars. But those are the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. And so you had every colony started by a different Christian denomination. Virginia was Anglican, Massachusetts was Puritan, Rhode Island was Baptist, New York was Dutch Reformed, Delaware and New Jersey were Swedish Lutheran, Maryland Catholic, Pennsylvania Quaker, uh, Connecticut, New Hampshire Congregationalists, and they originally did not get along, and they would tar and feather each other and chase each other around. Their attitude was, if you don't like our denomination, start your own (laughs) colony. But then the Revolutionary War starts, and they all have to work together against the King of England the same way that all these kingdoms of Europe had to work together against the Islamic invasion. And so they said, look, we may not agree on religion all the time, uh, but you are willing to fight and die for my freedom. I need to let you practice your faith. And so they began to tolerate each other on a state level. Um, You know, the new denominations were being started, especially after the second great awakening. And, uh, but it's interesting, a quote from, uh, I think it's John Carroll. Um, he was the first bishop in America, first Catholic bishop in America. And then his uh, cousin was Charles Carroll, the richest man in America from Maryland, who signed the Declaration of Independence. And uh, But John Carroll wrote, observing the Christian faith divided into so many different sects gave me the assurance that no one single sect would become so predominant as to become the religion of the state. Mm. This was uh, entertained by many, and that, and so th- thusly I jealously entered into the revolution. So this idea where we go down the street and say, isn't it terrible that the body of Christ is divided into so many different denominations? They drove down the street and they said, this is great. All these denominations, they'll each be vying for converts and they'll cancel each other out so that no one single denomination will be able to become the religion of the state Mm. and get back to this, whatever the king believes the kingdom has to believe. Right. 
So, huh. so this American experiment, as it's been said, this idea of people rule, you know, we, we get to govern ourselves. Is that unique across history? And um, does it have a chance to survive? Um, yeah, it, it is unique. Um, you know, the, the pastors in New England, uh, they look to the Bible as an example. Mm-hmm. But part of the Bible, that first 400 years out of, out of Egypt, before Israel got King Saul. So that when you study history, and I put it together in several books, one of my new books is called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, from the beginning of recorded history, Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets, you have kings, pharaohs, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars. The kingdoms keep getting bigger and bigger until the king of England had the biggest. But it's this idea uh, that ancient Israel, about 1400 BC, they came out of Egypt. And for 400 years, they had no king. It's a total anomaly. You have millions of people and no king. And it worked because every single citizen was taught the law. Mm. I tell people, it's like everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone. <laughs> right? So you don't need yeah. someone in your car telling you directions. Right. You've got your own app you can get from A to B all by yourself. Mm. So you don't need some government person telling you what to do. Everybody downloads a behavioral app. And instead of it on an iPhone, it's in your heart. And the Levite priests are the computer geeks that help you to download the app. Hmm. Like, now, where do I go to get this app? Okay, you got to go to Apple Store, Google Play, you know, press here, line upon line, precept upon precept, you download it. (laughs) So everybody would learn, get the law, and they'd have it on their heart. And so they could, I mean, imagine that, uh, that, uh, you know, you're, you're about to steal. And then it says, alert, alert. Uh, I see you eyeing that on the table. Don't take that. Or, or it, it, it checks your, your heart rate and it sees that you're, you're lose, getting stressed out and you're about to lose your temper and yell at somebody. It'll say, alert, alert, don't lose your temper, right? So imagine a behavioral app. And, but the big question is, why would you follow it? Hmm. What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Ancient Israel had the key ingredient. There's a God who's watching everyone. He wants you to be fair. And he's going to hold you accountable in the future. You're about to steal. Nobody's around. And they think God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. Create something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country really actually believes this, Mm -hmm. you can maintain complete order with no police. Maximum freedom and liberty, right? Uh, Women can go anywhere without fear. You don't have to lock all your doors, right? Because everybody is going to be fair. All right. They know God's watching him is going to hold them accountable in the future. And so uh, so this is what America's founders drew from ancient Israel. And we, and we call it Western civilization. You get rights from God and uh, individually and government establishes to protect your, your individual rights. You choose from amongst your own individuals as to who's going to be in leadership and you can vote them out whenever you want. And um, maybe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the. Uh, now, I do want to mention something about the individual. Yeah. So instead of you believing it because the king tells you to believe it, mm-hmm. the emphasis is on the individual, and then it breaks into the different denominations, and then more denominations, and then more denominations. So it's the place where everybody, uh, you'll find smaller and smaller groups that believe different things, and, and it's okay, but there's always a ditch on the other side of the road. 
And what's that? That it is so individual that it doesn't have any responsibility to others, to society, uh, and it gets off into the uh, uh, the the errors of it's just me. Mm. And the churches that say, just focus on your own relationship with God and abandon any responsibility to give to your kids a country with the same freedoms that you had, mm. right? Proverbs says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It's like, no, 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 it's just me and God. And I'm going to go off and live in a cave. I'm going to go off and have my spiritual experiences. And I'm going to just my relationship. With God. I'm, I'm going to give up any responsibility to be the salt of the earth any responsibility to preserve society for the next generation. It, you know, it, it's so individual that, you, and so it's important for us to understand it is individual, but we are a body and, and we, we, we need to understand both of it. We're not just the body, right. Where mm -hmm. it's just outward compliance and there's no personal. And um, so, so there's the middle of the road. So in, in American history, when did that begin to degrade? Like it started off at that point. What, what was the turning point to where it, it feels like it's shifting the other way to where it's kind of going down toward this top-down rule uh, where you, we have to ask permission from a governing body if we, you know, in the last 18 months, if we can do our job. You know, the government has to tell us if we are, um, what we do is essential enough to go out and do it. Um you know, I, am I allowed to drive a car on the road? How, how do I, who do I have to pay to be able to drive a car on the road? You know, when did we, <laughs> is this just a really slow transition? Is this normal across history? What was that turning point? Uh, in my book on socialism, I go through four distinct steps. So the pilgrims originally were a company colony. And it was based on bylaws that said everything was owned in common. Hmm. The what uh, writers of the bylaws looked back to Plato and Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon, which were early socialist type concepts of owning thing in common. So the, the pilgrims originally had a company bylaw that said everything would be owned in common. Everything gained by cooking, hunting, fishing, trading shall go into ye common stock. Hmm. And everyone's livelihood shall come out of ye common stock. And and nobody wanted to do anything. And so <laughs> someone else William will do Bra it. Yeah, William Bradford says that the young man objected to doing twice as much work as the old guy, but mm. he got paid the same. And the old guy objected to being classed in labor with the younger ones and considered it a dishonor to him. And the women objected to having to wash other men's clothes. And nobody wanted to go out and plant, and, and they almost starved to death. So William Bradford said, we had to come up with a better idea. And so after much discussion, it was decided that every family should get their own plot of land. This made all hands more industrious. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and inability, and to have compelled them would have been considered great oppression. So the pilgrims, they transitioned from an involuntary model to a voluntary model. What's that? So covenant is an agreement with each other and you get rights individually from god blessings individually from god but you're tearing, taking care of one another voluntarily because you're personally accountable to god mm. do unto others as you would have them do unto you voluntary is the operative word here 
In the century after the pilgrims, covenant turned into social contract. It's just an agreement with everybody else, not necessarily a, a commitment to take care of them. And if God is there, he's distant. Mm. He's far removed. He's not involved. This comes out of the scientific revolution, right? The age of enlightenment, where you have Sir Isaac Newton discovering laws of gravity, laws of optics, laws of motion, Kepler discovering laws of planetary motion, Robert Boyle discovering laws of pressure. And so some theologian says, well, gee, maybe God had made everything with laws and it's just letting it run its course. Like a guy makes a clock with all the intricate gears and they're all working together, just winds up the clock and sets it on a shelf. And, and if God's there, yeah, he's there, but he's, he's distant. He's not really involved. Everything's just sort of running its course. And, and then, so we go from pilgrim covenant with a personal God to age of enlightenment, social contract with a distant God to the next century, French revolution with no God. Hmm. It's just social contract. It's just what we all agree upon. You get your rights from the group, you're accountable to the group. And the next century, you turn into socialism where the state is God, right? You get your rights from the state, you're accountable to the state. And if the state thinks you're not pulling your weight, the state can kill you. Hmm. And so you have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote the social contract, says, when the state says to an individual, it's expedient for the state that you should die, that individual <laughs> ought to die because wow. his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. If there's no God, you don't have rights. You're not made into any God's image because there is no God. You don't have rights that the government's supposed to protect that were given to you by God. There's no God. You don't have any rights other than what the government gives. What the government giveth, the government can take it away. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so those four steps, you can sort of see that transition from covenant, where you're taking care of people voluntarily, to uh, because you're accountable to this personal God, to age of enlightenment. It's just sort of an agreement with each other, and you got this distant God to the French Revolution. Uh, now, the motto of the French Revolution was liberty, equality, fraternity. Sounds nice. Liberty is experienced individually. Fraternity is experienced collectively. Fraternity, that's where you get their word for socialism. Hmm. It's the group. It's the social contract. It's the mob. It's the state. And equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law, but in France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. What well, was and that? Because there was that because their base was this idea that it all went into one pot. Yeah, it's this idea that the pie is limited, and if you get too much, then you're taken mm -hmm. away from what somebody else. It's not the idea that you can make another pie. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> you can grow more food, you can, and so uh, the for, if the fraternité, the group, the socialist state. Uh, so in, a, in a, thinks you have too much stuff, it can use the power of the state to take away your stuff and redistribute it and even kill you hmm. for being too greedy. And so uh, in France, the socialist state took away the king and his property and chopped his head off, King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Then they took away and killed all the royalty, chopped their heads off. Then they chopped off the heads of the wealthy. All right, you have money, I don't, you're selfish. Then they chop off the heads of the businessmen and farmers. You have food and supplies, we don't, you're selfish. Then they chopped off the heads of the hoarders. You got extra food, we don't have enough, you're selfish. Wow. Then they got rid of the clergy who were speaking out against the head chopping off stuff. Then they chopped <laughs> off the heads of the former revolutionaries, the ones that used to chop off heads but got tired of it, somehow they're to lean. 30,000 people had their, mm -hmm. they were chopping off so many heads they had to invent 
a nice clean machine to chop <laughs> off heads called a guillotine. <laughs> yes. Right. And and if there's no God, mm -hmm. who decides what's right and wrong? The mob, the socialist state, the group. And um, so uh, that's the the dilemma. You go from voluntarily mm -hmm. taking care of your neighbor because you're personally accountable to God to the government saying, well, we're going to redistribute it to who we think you ought to get it. Right. We're going to be more fair than you are. And the dilemma is whoever controls the purse strings has the power. Hmm. Okay, everybody's going to own everything equally. Okay, it's great. Let's get started. Uh, who's going to decide who gets what? Um, somebody in the government will decide who gets what, right? Well, the whoever controls the purse strings has the power. So right? would it be a fair really broad statement to to say that there's kind of two fundamental foundational beliefs in all of this. One of them is that the the state, the people in charge, uh, they're the best deciders of your uh, value and what to do with your goods and services and what you do. And the other side of that is that the individual is the best decider, decision maker on your value and what to do with your goods. Um, would that be a, a a fair, simplistic understanding of the ideologies? Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you have uh, churches and preachers, they will be telling the individual um, there's something called charity. What's mm -hmm. that? That's where you are voluntarily moved upon <laughs> in your heart right. to give something yeah. to somebody that needs it, not the government taking it all away and giving it. The Bible talks a whole lot about charity. Mm -hmm. If if you have everything taken away and the government's redistributing it, you have no say in it. You cannot be charitable. What are you going to do? Steal from somebody and give it away? Now you're a thief. <laughs> and and the, if if we as individuals have the choice of being good or bad, selfish or selfless, gee, what about the people that are in government? Mm. Do they suddenly turn into angels when they get in office, or are they still humans? And they still are subject to temptations. And the temptation they face is they like their job. And the temptation is to funnel a little extra to your friends, the ones that support you. And that person that is not that wanting to be a trouble for you and they're wanting to get rid of you, you're going to be discretionary. Maybe not give them as much as you used to, right? You may even use your position to have them be audited, mm -hmm. put them through a little trouble, maybe even have them be arrested, maybe even get rid of them. And so that's the dilemma. The person that has the government job of dispensing everything likes their job and they will be discretionary. Uh, right. in, order so, to, in order to keep it. <laughs> and so all of that government people working together is this big blob called the deep state. It's like the cyber Borg on Star Wars or whatever. I mean, or to Star Trek. It's they have this collective consciousness. It's like if you work for a, a, a business, mm -hmm. you have two thoughts. The direct thought is you want to do your job really good. But the secondary thought is you sort of want the business to be successful because they can continue to pay you and pay your healthcare benefits or whatever. I mean, if the business goes under, you're not going to have either, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens when somebody's working for the government? They have two thoughts. One is they do their little job, but they have a secondary thought of, I want the, the government to get bigger because I, I want to have advancement and I want to have a secure retirement. I want And so when you have all these government people 
all wanting the government to get bigger, it turns into what's called the deep state. And they act on this collective consciousness where if you get a politician that says, you know what, I want to cut the size of government. It's like, oh, that guy's our enemy. What can we do to stop him? Uh, let's leak some stuff to the media. Oh, we have an intelligence community. Let's dig up dirt on him. Uh, hey, we have a CIA that leaks stories to the media, right? The Operation Mockingbird, you know, in the 1970s mm -hmm. that Carl Bernstein with the you know the Watergate, you know, talked about how the they'd feed stories to the media. So let's let's leak some stories to the media attacking this politician. And then then we can stand back and and the story will get legs and it'll get talked about and nobody will know that we planted the story in the first place. And let's get rid of this politician that wants to cut the size of government. And um, you know, so um so, so it's just power. <laughs> um Socialism, the, your book. Um, that went the real history from Plato to the present. Um, what, I mean, so you went back, way back, to look at this concept of what that is. Um, in a nutshell, um, is socialism, as you've seen it over your research, is it what they are clamoring for? in certain segments of the political class today in America? Is it the same thing or are they different? Yeah, socialism is basically counterfeit New Testament church. But the difference is voluntary versus involuntary. Mm. So instead of you selling your property, laying into the feet of the apostles for the church to redistribute, mm -hmm. and it's disinterested benevolence, you're not wanting anything in return. The person doing the distributing doesn't want anything in return. Um, socialism is the government forcibly taking it. Imagine if the early church sold, were forced to sell all their property and forced to lay the money at the feet of Pilate mm -hmm. for the Roman government to redistribute. Pilate's going to be like, okay, we got this extra money. I'm going to funnel it to all my Roman friends, <laughs> you know? Uh, so people say, oh, well, socialism is the early church. No, no, no. It's the big difference between voluntary and involuntary. The early church, they voluntarily sold it. They weren't mm -hmm. forced by the government to sell it. And, and they could give it, that's called charity, where if, if it's taken from them, there's no charity involved there. Is and, that called taxation? They, <laughs> yeah. And then when the government gives it. Um, yeah. So, so the, um, uh, but, but yeah, the, the big picture is, you know, the individual versus the collective, the group and Western civilization always highlights the individual getting rights from a creator. If there's no creator, all the only place you can get rights from is the group. Mm -hmm. Once Jesus says, you know, render to Caesar what Caesar, what's God's, what's God. He said, Hey, there, the, the Roman Caesars were declaring themselves God. And when Jesus says, no, there's a God above you, mm -hmm. uh, a God above the group. And, and so when you get rights from a God that's above the group, then the government's job is to protect your God-given rights. Eisenhower gave a great quote. He said, in some lands, the government claims to be the author of human rights. If the government gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those mm -hmm. rights. So our founding fathers had to refer to the creator in order to make their revolutionary experiment make sense. We had to claim we had source of rights and blessings above the government. Mm -hmm. The government is to protect our God and rights. If there's no God, your rights come from the government. And what the government giveth, the government can take it the way it. It, it, it is Socialism interesting. Socialism always wants to get rid of God. Yeah, it is interesting just the the way 
it's talked about and you know primarily in the media and academia the idea that the the bill of rights in america is uh the government extending rights to you when in reality it's just the opposite of that it's it's telling the government you can't mess with these rights that we already have um it, is that a uh just a really s- sneaky sleight of hand that's trying to be pulled just to get people to start uh misunderstanding yeah yeah you, you said it very well yeah so the first 10 amendments were handcuffs on the federal government we know that because we can read it right it says congress <laughs> shall make no law yeah well who's congress that was the only lawmaking body yeah back then judges didn't make laws from the bench back then presidents didn't make laws with executive decisions back then the bureaucracies didn't make laws through writing of regulations Back then, Congress was the only lawmaking body. So it says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress shall not take away the right to freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the right to travel by your peers, freedom of the right to possess and bear arms. Congress shall not challenge. It was all handcuffs on the federal mm-hmm. government. It was all slapping the hand of the federal government saying, hands off. These are rights that we get directly from the creator. And um, But the big change happened with the 14th Amendment. So we had civil war. Democrats in the deep South had slaves. After the and Republican Lincoln freed the slaves. Democrats in the deep South pushed through Jim Crow laws and black codes and were treating the freed slaves badly. And so Republicans in the North pushed through the 13th Amendment, officially ending slavery, but the 14th Amendment. What was that? That was the Republican uh, congressman. Uh, I think it was Farnsworth, whatever, but he says, um, basically, we have to force the Southern states to give rights to the freed slaves. Mm. State laws in the states of Georgia and South Carolina, whatever, they weren't giving the freed slaves the the freedoms that they should. And so the federal government says, we're going to force them. So the 14th Amendment was to... uh, Force these southern states to give rights to the free slaves. But the wording of it was that they would apply the first eight amendments to the state. And you think, what do you mean apply? Well, we're gonna we're gonna force these states to honor the, and then but well, what about the ninth and tenth amendments? Well, those are a little more difficult because they specifically say all rights not specifically granted from the states to the federal government <laughs> shall remain under the state's control. Right. So you can't you can't apply that to the mm-hmm. states because right, but the Fourteenth Amendment basically took it used it had a good uh, goal in mind to give rights to the freed slaves, but it effectively took the handcuffs off the federal government and put those handcuffs on the states, mm. and that was important because from that point on, you had these judges wanting to intervene in things in other areas that used to just be under state's jurisdiction but now they're uh they're saying the 14th amendment allows the federal government to come into the states and invalidate uh state laws and uh there were cases where um you know like a farmer was feeding his hay to his cows and the federal government said if you're feeding your hay to your cows, you're not buying hay and you're not selling hay. So you are affecting the interstate price of hay 
So we're going to say that because it's an interstate thing and because we're 14th Amendment and the Commerce Clause, we're going to have the federal government come in and tell you that you cannot feed your hay to your cows. I mean, crazy stuff that they were pushing through with this 14th Amendment and the Commerce Clause, this expanded definition of the, uh, there's two ways to change laws. One is you real time consuming. You got to write a law. (laughs) Congressmen and senators. You got to pressure them to write the law. You got to pressure them to vote on it and pass it. Then you got to pressure the president that you voted in to sign the thing. And it's really, it's a whole lot easier way to change laws. You simply get an activist judge to broaden the definition of words that are in existing laws. Well, now this word, we're not going to say that this word also means this. Mm-hmm. And it also means that. And you just brought this definition to basically you can have the, the definition mean the exact opposite of what the law was intended to do. But um anyway. seems kind of dirty. So the, <clears throat> that leads right into my next question. Was the Supreme Court ever designed to be the final say? Uh, it was uh, they were supposed to interpret not make laws. Mm. Uh, a couple key cases. Uh, John Adams was leaving office and he put a couple people in. Thomas Jefferson gets in office, doesn't want those people in and gets rid of them, puts in somebody else. And the person brought a lawsuit. So it's called Mayberry versus Madison, I think was the name of it. Um, and um, and so this was um, who's in charge? Who's, who's the right one to interpret the Constitution? The president is the head of the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and this is uh, people that he's got employed in his executive branch. Certainly he should be the final say there. Uh, So there was a tug of war. Another was uh, Andrew Jackson. And so there was the chief justice, John Marshall. Uh, There was a case where the state of Georgia was encroaching on Cherokee land because gold was discovered in like 1829 or something like that. And uh, they were beginning to have tensions with the Cherokee. And the Cherokee bring a lawsuit. They go up to the Supreme Court. And John Marshall decides in favor of the Cherokee. This is your land. You get to keep it and keep people off it. Well, Andrew Jackson didn't like that decision. And he said Marshall made his decision. Let him enforce it. In other words... The, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any police. It doesn't have anything to enforce. It's up to the president to enforce the Supreme Court decision. And Jackson said, I'm flat out not going to enforce that. And we're going to go ahead and eventually do the Indian Removal Act and push all the Indians west. So it was it was bad what Andrew Jackson did. It was, you know, it was good, but it did highlight the fact that the final say over who gets to interpret the constitution was uh, up for grabs. Hmm. And eventually uh, John Marshall began to push through what he called judicial review. And Thomas Jefferson criticized it. He says that uh, like a thief, a little today, a little tomorrow, gaining uh, over the field of jurisdiction till all rights shall be usurped from the states. So, so Jefferson was warning that the Supreme Court, with a little decision here, a little decision there, they're gradually going to take rights away from the states. And, uh, you know, the states were really jealous of the power uh, when it came to, um, 
you know, they just got done fighting a war with the King of England. They weren't in a hurry to give up their rights again. It's interesting. Several of the states kept, kept records of their ratifying conventions. And when you read these, especially like North Carolina and so forth, you get to get the state's understanding of the Constitution. And so when New Hampshire, the ninth state to ratify the Constitution, which put the Constitution into effect, they send a letter with their understanding to Congress saying, we understand that this Second Amendment mm -hmm. means that the federal government will never take away any gun from any individual person, period. Hmm. We understand this. We understand that, right? So we're ratifying it. So, so we're they were basically state. saying we're, we're doing this because this is what we understand it to be. And so we're, we're yeah. going to agree if this is the reason. Yeah. And uh, but then, of course, and then I think it was Jefferson or Madison said, instead of trying to see what meaning can be squeezed out of the words in the Constitution, <laughs> we should go back and read the debates and embody the spirit that was evident mm -hmm. and try to adhere to the closest understanding of what the writers intended. But just the fact that he said, you know, instead of trying to squeeze whatever meaning we can out of this word. <laughs> so so they saw this, yeah. this broadening of these definitions of these words even way back then. Hmm. And it usually happens with somebody wanting to do something good. And that's what Washington warned of in his farewell address. Well, and it doesn't that get the the emotions of the people on board that way? Because it's for the yeah. good of everybody. So just it, it's good. Go along with it because it's for it's for everyone's own good. Well, it's good and it's fast. Mm. You want a quick answer. Yep. Um, our Constitution was designed to go slow, slow to making good decisions, frustratingly slow to making good decisions. <laughs> But thank God, slow mm -hmm. to making bad, irreversible decisions. Mm -hmm. They realized it could take a lifetime to build a mansion and one irresponsible match to burn the thing down in a day. Mm. Right? So they designed the government to work slowly. But people want their answers quick. And so Washington warns in his farewell address, he says that disorders and miseries will incline the hearts of men to seek security in the absolute power of an individual. Mm who will turn this disposition to his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. He goes, usurpation, though in one instance, is the instrument of good. It is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Hmm. He goes, uh, any transient benefit that comes will be far outweighed by permanent evil to our form of government. What's he talking about? It's like, I want to do something good. It's just going to, you know, take away some of your rights and freedoms, you know, to, in the process, but it's going to be good. And, um, and it's like, yeah, it, it may be good in the short run, but it's going to set a precedent yeah. that the next Congress and the next president, and the next court is going to build on and build on and build on until the snowball is, is just going to be so big. It's going to take all the rights away from the people. So I guess I don't know how how complex this topic will be, but we can go as deep as you want to go. Um, where did this? Well, and I don't want to. Well, and, and I'm free to come on with you another time, so we don't have to say everything that you know in this one interview. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I have two two more things I really kind of would like your thought on, and then I would love to have you back. It'd be a blast because, I mean, just the, <laughs> we could go down so many rabbit holes here, which is fascinating to me. Um, so thank you for your time. Uh, this idea of critical race theory, um, is that that's not a new phenomenon, is it? No, the idea of uh, goes all the way back. Uh, first instance I saw of it was Abimelech mm. during the Book of Judges, and he 
his uh, father's Gideon, but he's an illegitimate son. So he has no power Mm -hmm. and he wants power. So he goes to the town of Shechem and where the the country's at peace, he sows division and he does it by identity, breaking, breaking into groups. And so he says, you know, look, should the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember, I am your flesh and your bone. And then it says the people of Shechem said, well, we got to vote for Abimelech because he is our brother. So they're identifying with him, with their town versus the nation of Israel, breaks into group. And then he hires rioters, goes to the temple of Balbareth, takes 70 pieces of silver to, to, to hire Antifa rioters. Mm-hmm. And they do violence and they go out and kill all the other sons of Gideon. Abimelech becomes king. And um, so the idea is um, this getting people to patriotism is the enemy. You want to get people to identify with subgroups and pit those subgroups against each other to show division and chaos. And when the chaos gets bad enough, everyone wants someone to come along and restore order. They'll trade freedom for security. But when the dust settles, uh, they've given up their, their freedom. And so this, I could go through dozens of examples, but the one that everybody's familiar with is uh, Karl Marx. And he said that basically you send, uh, you identify a culture and see all the groups, all the subgroups. It's called critical theory. And then you pit them against each other to show division. Proletariat versus bourgeois, working class versus business owners, right? The blacks against the whites, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Muslims against the Christians, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And they don't really care who the two sides are. They don't really care what the issues are. The goal is to break people into groups, pit them against each other. And when everyone gets panicky, there's bloodshed, they cry for someone, somebody that's strong enough to come in and restore order. And they do. And it transitions from the people ruling themselves bottom up back to a strong government being ruled top down. Mm-hmm. And um, um, lastly, this time, uh, how important is it that we record current events? You know, because because I mean, you have been able to do your research because people recorded as it's happening. They recorded history, and so we have that. And you know, you talk about the the Muslims destroying, um, and the the Chinese was it the Chinese de- destroying other people's. You know, we don't want history if it's not what the history we want. How important is it that we document what's going on as it's happening today? Yeah, so I do a little illustration where I put a dot on a white piece of paper and I ask you where the next dot's going to be. It could be anywhere, 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. But if I could show you all the dots preceding that dot, mm. and then I ask you where the next dot's going to be, you're like, you know what? I could put a ruler up here. I could sort of plot a pattern. I could sort of see that it's moving in this direction. It's probably going to be up here to the you know, top right-hand side of the page. Uh, so I tell people history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. If mm-hmm. all you know is now, you have no predictive ability. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I, I, I find it fascinating. Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts did a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. Mm-hmm. And it was 1979, 1989. Congressman Charlie Wilson got the CIA to do the largest covert operation in CIA history of arming the Taliban in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. Mm. It made a movie out of it. It was so successful that Sylvester Stallone 
made a movie called Rambo 3. It was the most expensive movie to that date. And it was about the CIA arming and training the Taliban, the fundamentalist Muslims, to drive out the Soviets out of Afghanistan. Hmm. Lo and behold, they call Operation Cyclone. Right? And so you have the CIA arming terrorist Muslim groups. When Bill Clinton was doing his war in Bosnia, he was funneling weapons to the Bosnian Muslims through Islamic terrorist groups. And then we see that Hillary Clinton was funneling weapons and stinger missiles and all kinds of stuff through Benghazi Mm -hmm. to Syria to take out Assad and some of those stinger missiles were brought to Afghanistan and used to shoot down a C-130 American plane. And, and so we have a quite a long history of arming fundamentalist Muslim groups. And when you understand that, and then you see the Biden administration suddenly withdrawing from this airport and leaving $85 billion worth of weapons, Hel- Blackhawk helicopters, planes, uh, 600,000 weapons. And anybody that's been in the military says, if you cannot withdraw your weapons, you blow them up before. This has every indication of an intentional decision to return to the Obama era of foreign policy in the Middle East, of supporting the Islamists to isolate Israel and to to get rid of the... Christian minorities in the Middle East, so there can be this fundamental Islamic bloc. And... Hmm. Wow! So, so history, so, yeah. So so history is important. History, <laughs> you can sort of see. Yeah. Hey, I can, I can. Yeah. Another little illustration I use is um, digitized picture. Mm-hmm. So I start off my presentation in front of a audience, and I have a picture. You're so zoomed in, all you see is the colored pixels. And I ask the audience, "What are you looking at?" I'm like, oh, I can't tell. Zoom out a little bit. What are you looking at? Mm, still can't tell. Zoom out. Zoom out. Zoom. Out. Well, it sort of looks like a like a nose. Zoom out a little more, you can see part of an eye, part of a nose. Zoom out a little bit more, you can see the face. And then pretty soon, I it was a picture of my daughter, you know. But I said <laughs> even I couldn't recognize it. Always, sometimes, if all you know is the present, mm-hmm. like well, you know, today looks like yesterday. This pixel looks like that pixel. Let's zoom out. Let's look at a couple of days. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at a couple of weeks. Let's look at a couple. Of, let's look at a couple of years. Let's go look at a couple of decades. Let's look at a couple of centuries. Let's look at a couple of millennia. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I can see what's happening. We've gone from dictators and pharaohs, Caesar, Kaiser, Saul, it's all top down. They rule through fear. And then we see, hey, here comes America breaking away and it's ruled through we the people. They got the ideas from ancient Israel. But in a, after every crisis, we see the people panicking and trading free, freedom for security. Little here, little there, little there, little there, until we're almost at a tipping point. So, um. Hmm. Anyway, but well. I, I always uh, they I keep, have to encourage myself. Again, it's in times of crises that power concentrates into the hands of dictators, but it's also in times of crises that people turn to Christ. Mm-hmm. So the first prophecy is God telling the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head, but you'll bruise his heel. Devil is not God. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know when and where all those is going to happen. And it happened simultaneously on the cross. So the devil gets the Jews and Gentiles, right? The Romans and the, to crucify Christ, dusts his hands, says, that's it. I, I got rid of him. And Jesus says, it is finished. It's like, what's finished? 
the devil just got the Jews and Gentiles to sacrifice the Lamb of God to shed his blood to pay for the sins of the world so that all of humanity would have an opportunity to approach this almighty, perfect, just God through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, to pay for those sins. The devil got his head crushed, his authority. The word head in the scriptures means authority. So what, what was Satan's job, right? He would point out that we're sinners to God and say, God, if you are a just God, you have got to judge them. And God says, I did judge him in Christ. Yeah, Jesus, I'm a just God. I judged him, but Jesus stepped in and took the judgment in their place. And so the devil lost the job. What's he going to do? God, they're sinners. He goes, yeah, I know they're sinners. I judged them. <laughs> All the devil can do is just try to get as many people not to know the truth until mm-hmm. he's finally thrown in the lake of fire. But Anyway, wow, that's my preaching part of the message. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I really appreciate it. AmericanMinute.com. Um, Socialism is your latest book, The Real History from Plato to the Present, um, along with, my goodness, the, the pile of uh, Here's another books. one I did on the history of Islam. Ooh. It's called Whatever American Needs to Know About the Quran, History of Islam in the United States. How far, a, how far back does that go? Uh, it first came out in 2006. Okay. But I, I've updated it over the years. That's awesome. Um, is AmericanMinute.com the best place for people to right. find you? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yes. And, and you also speak around the country, is that correct? Yeah. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time very much. Uh, this I could keep going because I'm just fascinated by the 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 depth of, of history that you have and the the parallels that we see. Um from then to now, it's it's uncanny and kind of terrifying and fascinating all at the same time. So, uh, Bill Federer, thank you very much for the time. And uh, any last word you want to get out to our listeners? Um, I do send out a email. Oh. It's sometimes daily, sometimes a couple times a week, but it's something in history mm-hmm. that uh, has some application to what's going on today. Okay. So, so and you, you can, can sign, sign up, up there on the website, right? Right, AmericanMinute.com. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. Bless all those watching. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Um, I hope it didn't take you too long, but I could could just soak it in. So thank you for sharing your some of your knowledge. All right. Well, I look forward to the next time. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. God God bless. Yep. Bye. Bye. This is the interview. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Bill Federer, AmericanMinute.com. You want to sign up for his newsletter? Go to AmericanMinute.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and there's an option to sign up to get his sometimes daily notes uh, and to check out the collection of books he's written. Uh, Don't forget Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present uh, is his latest book. Check it out. Thanks for hanging out with us. Whymilbank.com is our website. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you on the next one.